Sorry. Grace Church is not a cruise liner for you to have every one of your needs met. Uh, so if you came here today expecting to be on a ship where you can eat all you want and have all the fun you want and it's all about that, I hate to disappoint you. That's not really what Grace Church is about. We are actually much more like a battleship because we have a mission and that mission is to engage in the battle for the souls of men and for of women, loved ones, and neighbors. If you're looking for the calm seas and the good life, that awaits us on the other side of life. But until then, we are under commission, under mission. Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And so a bit more like a battleship on mission. And uh, sometimes when you're on a battleship, you lack all the luxuries that you would normally have in, in a nice cabin and a good view. Uh, so things get a little austere. Well, this morning, things got just a little austere on us. Uh, I walked in at 5 o'clock and realized none of the lights in the house worked. So thankfully, uh, Manus got here, to part of the tech team, ran in back, redid the software and the dimmer packs in the back room, but the board is dead. So the lighting you see is the only lighting that we can have today. And it's interesting, there's only one spotlight that works, and it happens to hit right here. So if I don't move a lot, that's because I'm under the light, the only light, all the rest are gone. So um, we're, we're running a little austere this morning. Lord willing, we can fix this this week. But we have what we have, and we will make the best of it, because that's what you do in wartime. You make the best of it. And so here we go. So we're on mission, and our mission is what we've been talking about. We've been talking about living gospel-shaped lives. The same message of God's wonderful grace that saves us is the same message of grace that is meant to shape our lives, to transform who we are individually and corporately as the people of God. And as we step into that shaping process, as we put ourselves into this place of growing in the person of Jesus Christ, the message that saved us has shaped us so that we can effectively share this mission with others. Dear ones, it is the difference Jesus makes in our lives that makes Jesus Christ attractive. It is not our ability to be just like the world that makes the world go, oh my gosh, what's different about you? Nothing. Nothing when we live like the world. But when we live as Christ commands us, we look remarkably different. And we've been talking about being this light in a very dark world. And I won't go through all of these again and because we're actually going to sum, uh, summarize this whole series next week, and so we'll go into more detail on them. But being the light that Christ wants us to be means that we are a united, generous, truthful, and serving church, people of God, in a world that is heavily divided, very stingy, and confused, and selfish. And all God's people said... That describes the world we live in, but that's also meant to describe us, the church, being those who are united, generous, truthful, and serving. And so again, if you have not been here over the last number of weeks as we've kind of unpacked each of these topics, I want to encourage you, 
go to gracewaldorf.org, gracewaldorf.org. That's our website. On our website, if you go down to the left-hand side, messages, click on that. We have audios of all of these messages. Or better still, or easier, I might say, is just take your phone. Go to your web, your app store, and type in Grace Church Waldorf. Download our app, and in the app are all the messages going back as long as I've been here. They're all there, as well as the missionaries out on this board, as well as prayer requests for the life of the church, as well as, as well as, as well as, all the good information's in that little app. So I want to encourage you to go there, get it, and enjoy it. Today, we're going to talk about a topic that I believe has the potential to show the greatest difference that Jesus Christ can make in a life, and hence the greatest opportunity to share the love of Christ with others. Today, we're going to talk about this topic of being a joyful church, a joyful people in a suffering, suffering world. Now, before we launch into this, I want to invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground as quickly as possible, but all of this, I believe, God can use in our lives. So let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you uh, for a relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. There's not a one of us here that deserves such a, a privilege. There's not a one of us here who can claim that we have it apart from your grace and through the sacrifice of Christ alone. But Father, uh, with grace comes responsibility. With eternal life comes responsibility. And that is to become like Christ and to share this good news with others. Help us today, Father, as we walk into what is perhaps one of the most difficult topics out there. The topic of suffering. Grant us your grace, I pray, in Jesus' name. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen. Learning how to suffer well is a very important part of life. Uh, I have been uh, devouring a book recently uh, written by a man by the name of Tim Keller. Tim Keller, pastor up in uh, New York City. He wrote a book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. It came out as a Penguin book, so this is meant to be for the di digestion worldwide, not just Christians. And this book has given me a lot of good insights, so a lot of what I'm going to be sharing with you will come from here. So if you really want to expand on a lot of what I'm talking about, you will find it in his writing. But Tim Keller, in the beginning of this book, opens with an assertion, an assertion. And it is this assertion. Nothing is more important to learn how to maintain a life. Nothing is more important to learn than how to maintain a life of purpose in the midst of painful adversity. Why? Why? Why is that so important? Why would that be true? Because life hurts. Suffering is real. Wounds happen all the time. Accidents come out of nowhere. Suffering is a part of living in this world. It's an unavoidable part. And how we process 
the hurts that have been inflicted upon us by others, how we make sense of the often apparently random accidents and happenings are vital to mental health and a proper meaning in life. So his assertion, I think, is a good one because if you live long enough, life hurts, amen? Suffering is on every hand. And I've also discovered this. When hurt people get hurt, hurt people hurt. And it just seems to go on and on and on and on. But he continues to, to play out his thoughts. And so he says this. One of the main ways that a culture serves its members is by helping them to face terrible evil and adversity. Sociologists and anthropologists have analyzed and compared the various ways that cultures train their members for grief, pain, and loss. And we're actually going to talk a little bit about some of these various cultures or worldviews and how they actually handle suffering and compare it to how Christians are meant to uh, handle suffering. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes. Because we do live in a multicultural land, and there are a lot of Hindus or a lot of Buddhists. There's a lot of uh, people behind Islam or, or honor and shame societies present with us. And a lot of people just have a, an eclectic understanding. So we're going to actually cover some of those. But I want you to notice what he goes on to say. And when this comparison of various cultures and how they help their members deal with grief, pain, and loss, when this comparison is done, what he says is this. It is often noted that our contemporary secular Western culture is one of the weakest and worst in history of doing so. People don't know how to suffer. People don't know how to hurt well. Why? Why is this the case? Well, I thought I would ask an expert to explain to us why is it that our present contemporary secular culture cannot handle suffering well. So I decided to invite in a guy by the name of Bill Nye. Bill Nye the science guy, or better yet, the Bill Nye the secular humanist evolutionary science guy. He is speaking at a graduation service in UMass Lowell, and hear what he has to say. And by the way, he's spoken all over the country in graduation services using much the same tact. And I often reflect on the words of my third grade teacher, Mrs. Cochran, and she told us, there are more stars in the sky than grains of sand on the beach. And there are, by any measure, a lot of grains of sand on a beach. I mean, they're more than you can count, for sure, but for most of us, they're more than you can imagine. I stood on the beach, it was in Delaware that summer, and I got to thinking about her assertion. Does she mean all the grains of sand that I can see? Does she mean the ones I can't see, the ones that must cover the beach a few meters deep? I mean, when the tide goes out, there's more sand. And I look behind me, there's sand, sand, sand. I look this way, a thousand nautical miles that way, a thousand, there's sand. Are you telling me, Mrs. Cochran, there are more stars than all of that? Well, apparently there are, by about a factor of 10. So in that long ago moment, I was paralyzed by self-doubt. I mean, I'm just a little kid standing on a beach, and that beach is one of many beaches on a planet that turns out to be, in the cosmic scheme of things, pretty small planet, a speck, really. Furthermore, my home speck, the Earth, is orbiting a star that is completely unremarkable. It's just another speck, and it's in a galaxy full of other specks with 
a vastness of space full of more galaxies. I am a speck on a speck, orbiting a speck, with a bunch of other specks in the vast emptiness of specklessness. And they clap. You see, Bill Nye is an evangelist. He is. Bill Nye is an evangelist for the bad news. And here's the bad news. You are a speck on a speck, orbiting a speck in the middle of a deep, spacey specklessness. Congratulations. What he's doing is he's saying this. You're nothing. And your life has no ultimate meaning or purpose other than that which you can create for yourself. And we all say, yeah. No. Now, these hyper-intellectuals who are graduating from colleges and you know all these, these uh, grad schools, obviously, you know, we can do this. Maybe. But most people can't. Most people cannot understand what is going on and why life doesn't work. And hence, this is what he goes on to say in his book, uh, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Our own contemporary Western society gives its members no explanation for suffering and very little guidance for dealing with it. Our culture gives its people almost no tools for dealing with tragedy. People are left to fend for themselves. There is no God. You are merely a galactic accident, insignificant specks in a huge world of cosmically powerful natural forces. Good luck. Have a good time trying to create meaning for yourself. Think about how hard this is. This life is all there is. There is no afterlife. There is no soul. All happiness has to be found right here and right now. So if the meaning of your life is to be happy, and I think most people would boil it down to that one point, suffering destroys your meaning in life. This is the world we live in. This is the reality all around us. You know, it used to be that people would wrestle with suffering in, in, in theological terms. They would look internally and they would ask them question, themselves questions of sin, sovereignty, the goodness of God. They would, they would wrestle with, with some of these hardships. And when they didn't know how to make sense of it all, they would go look for somebody in the clergy to help them make sense of suffering. They don't do that anymore. They just don't do that anymore. Today, rather than wrestling in, in theologic, theological terms, suffering is handled today by medical experts using therapeutic terms. That's how our world wrestles with difficulties. You go to the doctor, and he says, you're sick. You see, I can't make any moral connotations about your life because there are no moral absolutes. You can do what you want. I can do what I want. So I can never tell you that the problem's inside of you. You go to the therapist. They tell you, you're a victim. You're a victim. And you go to the pharmacist, and they say, hey, you're only one prescription away from your best life yet. This is our culture. This is where people are at today. The experts in our secular world today are not clergy. They're doctors and they're therapists and they're pharmacists. And our medical system is breaking under the weight of people who cannot cope with life. After all, you're just a speck on a speck, orbiting a speck in the middle of a speck, deep species specklessness. There's no point, no purpose. Do your best. And people can't. It doesn't work for them. 
Hence, the church. The people of God. We can show our culture, our lost, secular, evolutionary-based culture, how to suffer well. Because we have all the resources we need to show the world how to do this well. Just before we actually talk about the topic, oh my gosh, look at the time, of how to suffer well, what I want to do is I want to remind you that there is an upcoming opportunity for you this Thursday evening. Again, much of what underlies this idea of a meaninglessness of life, secularism, is, is this thing called uh, evolution. So I want to remind you that on Thursday night, this coming Thursday night, is Genesis history. We'll go back and look at the foundations of the teachings of the Word of God and compare it against the facts that we find in, our, in, in the world and then draw the conclusion that there are two basic understandings. One is evolution, one is creation, but only one is true. And from there, it will take you. So I want to encourage you to do that. I've already bought two tickets. Dennis and I are going to California Thursday night at 7 o'clock, and we're going to sit, and we're going to watch, and we're going to engage it, because I think ultimately it might be meaningful to bring it back into the church. So just an encouragement for you to do that. So how do we suffer well? How do we suffer well? And I just want to say, we must look to the cross. You must look to the cross. Friends, what makes Christianity and our ability to handle suffering unique in this world is that we have a God who entered into our fallen world and wore our skin and subjected himself to suffering. And not just any suffering, but all the indignity, hate, betrayal, and pain of the cross. He, the sinless, perfect Lamb of God, suffered and died for us. And friends, no other God has ever done such a thing. I love this poem put out by Edward Shalito. It's called Jesus of the Scars. Notice what he said. The other gods were strong, but thou was weak. They rode, thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. It is the cross. It is the reality that to our wounds, God's wounds speak. So in the next few moments, and I've got 15 minutes. <laughs> this will be fun. Strap on your hats. Here we go. What I want to do is I want to show you how God's wounds speak to our wounds and suffering. And at the same time, I want to show you how the cross of Jesus Christ crushes and lays waste to all the other worldviews on suffering. Fifteen minutes. Here we go. All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about, first of all, this idea of Hinduism. Hinduism has a concept that tells people why there is suffering and, and what is going on. And that concept is called what? Karma. Karma. Now, you will discover that that's all over the place in our society, and people don't always use it the way it was originally intended. But right now, I want you to think of the worst thing that's ever happened to you. Think of the most painful thing you've gone through. And maybe it hasn't been that bad for you. So think about the worst thing that could ever happen to you. What would it be that would just knock you out and not give you the ability to go on? What is that? Okay, 
Now, from karma, let me explain to you exactly how you are to respond to that scenario you see. Okay, here we go. You ready? Okay, here we go. Karma says to your form of suffering, sucks to be you. That stinks. That's lousy. You must have been a really, really bad person. Because karma teaches that the proportion of your suffering is connected to the proportion of your evil and wrong in life. And so if you're going through hard times, karma says, that stinks, that's so bad, and you must be really bad. Let me give you a full definition of what karma truly is. Uh, it is the belief that the proportion of our suffering is due to the proportion of our sin. It holds that every soul is reincarnated over and over and over again. And into each of these lives, the soul brings its past deeds along with its latent effects, including suffering with it. If you're suffering now and you do it with decency, courage, and love, then your future life will be better. In short, karma is nothing more than a type of moralism. No one gets away with anything. Everything must be paid for. Your soul is only going to be released into divine bliss of eternity when you have atoned for all your sin. Does that just not create warm fuzzies for you? You're going through hardship, and, 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 and you come from a background where karma is, is the focal point. That stinks. That doesn't offer any hope. It doesn't give any real explanation. It doesn't help us deal with really with anything what i want you to understand is that the cross destroys the concept of karma completely first by claiming that our suffering is proportional to our sin friends suffering is often unjust and disproportional ask people in syria right now ask people in india right now Ask Jesus on the cross, perfect, sinless son of God, and look at his suffering. Was that proportional to what he had done? Absolutely not. You look at the book of Job. Look in the book of Job. There it testifies that suffering is often not just or proportional to the way a person has lived their lives. The only way to make karma work is to make up multiple lives over multiple eons. Sounds like evolution, doesn't it? You just give me enough time and I can explain anything. You give me enough lives and I can tell you why you're suffering. And so, that's the only way that karma can explain the suffering of children, the death of infants, and the reason for deformities is that you did something really wrong in your previous life and you're paying for it now. Can I say to you, as a Christian, never let the word karma come off your lips. Don't allow that to happen. Because karma is one of the most devious things that Satan has ever foisted on people. I have walked the streets of India, and in the streets of India, there are tens of millions, yea, a billion people who are subjected to all kinds of indignities and suffering, and nobody helps them. Why? Well, if I in, in somehow step into their karma, they'll just have to suffer all over again. So I just leave them to suffer so that they can get it out of this life to move on to the next. That's damnable. That's wrong. There is no compassion in karma. Oh, 
There goes my one bulb. Oh, well. Listen, I'm, I'm serious. Don't, don't use the word karma flippantly because it is a damnable thing. And it is holding millions, yea, a billion people in bondage to suffering. But not only does the cross destroy the concept uh, of karma that, that does away with the proportional idea of suffering, it also does away with the idea of multiple lives to pay for all your sin. You see, the cross doesn't say, karma, you have to pay for your sin. What the cross screams to us is this idea of grace, grace, marvelous grace, wonderful grace, amazing grace. The Son of God suffered the punishment for our sins, so we will never have to push, uh, suffer the punishment for them again. So when suffering touches our lives, it is not God's judgment on us. Let me say that again. When suffering touches the lives of a child of God, it is never punitive. It is never judgment. It is never condemnation because Romans 8.1 says clearly, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we know because of the cross, the cross speaks of God's grace in suffering showing us purpose for our pain. And that purpose is the good purpose of a father training up his children to be more like his favorite son, Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, And you, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons and daughters? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when he, you're reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones that he what? Oh my gosh. And he will chasten, that's chastise, that, that's child rearing, training, every son he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all participate, then you're illegitimate. You're not truly his children. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who discipline us, and we respect them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father's spirits and live, live a full life? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But our God, our Father, disciplines us, child trains us for our what? Our good. This is how we perceive suffering in our lives today. It is daddy training his children that we may share in his holiness from the moment for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant and all god's people said but later friends it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it so this is what it's talking about uh, again uh, keller in his book gave us this statement and i thought it was good some suffering is given in order to chastise and correct a person for wrong patterns of life this is child raising. Some suffering is given not to correct past wrongs, but rather to prevent future ones. As in the case of Joseph, who was sold into slavery, hence protecting the entire Jewish race in years to come. And some suffering has no purpose other than to lead a person to love God more ardently for himself alone 
and so discover the ultimate peace and freedom that is found in relationship with God. The cross speaks of God's grace in suffering, showing us purpose in our pain. It is never punitive. It is never to condemn. It is never judgment. It is loving correction, bringing us nearer to the Father. That's the truth of Scripture. That's how we understand this. So, we've considered the issue of, of, of karma. Please, again, our, our society has bought that up and they use that to try and explain so many things. It just is not true. But next, let's look at uh, another uh, reality that's going on, and it's the issue of Buddhism. How do the Buddhists deal with suffering? The Buddhist way of dealing with suffering is through something called detachment detachment. The key to suffering is to detach yourself from all things, and thus in your detachment you can transcend the pain and suffering attached to the things of this world. To overcome suffering is to detach your heart, not to love anything in this world too much. A statement Never give in to your affections is thought to be the most practical way to live your life. Restrain your love and your joy in anything, lest in losing it you suffer. This is how Buddhists deal with this issue of suffering. But what I want you to understand is, is that the cross crushes this concept of detachment. The cross smashes it. God did not choose to remain aloof and detached from us, but rather God pursues us in deep love. And in that love, he was willing to suffer for those that he truly loved. This is what the cross says. This smashes the concept of Buddhism and detachment. The cross is about love. I love the scriptures. The scriptures just speak to us. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and he sent his son to be a suitable sacrifice for our sins. Aren't you glad God didn't remain detached? Aren't you glad that God didn't remain aloof? Aren't you glad that God wasn't worried about being hurt? It's because of love. It's because of love. Again, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners running the other way, not caring at all about God, Christ was willing to suffer, bleed, and die for us. Because of this, because of this, if God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give him graciously all things? Who shall bring a charge against any of God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it who condemns? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, he is raised. He is at the right hand of God, and he intercedes now for us. Who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or danger? That's suffering. That's suffering. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors, overcomers, through him who has loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the people of God said, Tim Keller made this assertion. He said, suffering is unbearable if you aren't certain that God is for you and with you. 
I am here to tell you according to the scriptures. Not only does the cross speak of God's grace in suffering, showing us the purpose for our pain, never punitive, never to condemn, never in judgment, always loving correction to bring us closer to himself. But the cross also speaks of God's love in suffering, urging us to trust him in our suffering because he is for us and with us. This is what makes the church different. This is what makes us stand out amongst our culture. We are so different because we have a God who was willing to come and put on our skin and suffer and bleed and die for us. Oh, the difference. Oh, the difference. All right, two more, and we'll move through these very quickly. We've looked at the issue of Hinduism and karma. We've looked at the issue of Buddhism and detachment. Uh, right now, we're, we're going to look at something called fatalism. Fatalism. Fatalism is something that is representative in, in most honor and shame cultures, where all of life is already predetermined and the individual has little to no effect upon their own life because the gods will do what the gods will do. They're merely capricious and they don't really care about you. Perhaps the, the largest segment in our world today that holds to this sense is something called Islam. Islam. The concept of fatalism common in Islamic philosophy and Persian literature denotes the belief in the preordained decree of God, according to which whatever happens to human beings or the whole universe has already been predetermined by the will and knowledge of the Almighty, and there can be no change or transformation through the agency of human will. You just gotta suck it up, and you just gotta grin and bear it, and die that way. You know, um, some great movies of the past, Sir Lawrence of Arabia, kind of gave us a little glimpse into Islam before Islam was much known. A more recent movie, is one called Hildalgo. Hildalgo. There we go. I think I get that right. Uh, this is a scene from that movie that I think captures the Islamic mindset. Jimmy. Jimmy. 
ten bucks for me. And no prize money worth a man's life. Oh, yes, it is written that God leads us to when he wishes and guides when he wishes. It was God's will that I die in this face. Just as it is his will who shall win. What about your will? What about your horse's will? Seems to me that's what gets you across the finish line. Only then is it written. I'm not sure how much of that you could actually hear. Uh, but the point behind Islam is this. All suffering is simply looked at as Allah's will. And for the true believers, the goal is to be completely submissive to that will in Islam. Islam means submitter. That's what the word means. And it has, it has been called the resigned endurance of high doom. What a strange term. But that's what it's like to live a fatalistic life. The idea is this. You have no control over your life. It's wholly at the capricious will of Allah. So you are to show no emotion in the face of Allah's will, or you will bring shame upon you and upon your family. So the goal is to remain as stoic in death as you can to honor your family. All I can say is the cross crushes this concept of fatalism. It crushes it because our God is not aloof and distant and capricious I call my God Father, and I have a personal relationship with him. And we see this in the cross, because Jesus was not fatalistic at the cross. Rather, he showed incredible passion, because he had a relationship with his Father. In the garden, prior to the cross, Jesus makes these statements. And he said to his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Remain here and watch for me. And in other places, it says, watch and pray. And going a little further, Jesus fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. In being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Do you know what he is in an honor and shame society? He's an embarrassment. He's not just grinning and bearing the will of God. No, he's not, because he has a father. He has a relationship. He's not capricious. He's actually engaging his father in prayer because he knows his father has a heart for him. That's not true in Islam. Islam, God is high and lifted up, and maybe he'll catch his ear through the many times you've been down towards Mecca five days today and repeat back to him the Quran over and over and over and over again. There is no relationship. So in Islam, it's fatalism. You just submit. But in Christianity, it's all about the relationship. And so he goes on, even on the cross, to saying about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In most cultures, they would look at that and call that weakness. But that's not what the scriptures call this at all. Thank God that we have a Savior who understands. We have a Father who has a heart for us and a Savior who is available to us. It says that he humbled him and he had to be humbled and made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful. That means withholding from us the things that we deserve and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, a sacrifice for our sins for because he himself suffered when tempted. Now, 
uh, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, you should have underlined in your Bible. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through to the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he without sin. Let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive grace and mercy to help in a time of need. Friends, the cross speaks of God's passion in suffering. And it calls us to approach God and to wrestle with our God in prayer because we have this relationship. This is Christianity, and it defeats fatalism completely. D.A. Carson said this, There is no attempt in Scripture to whitewash the anguish of God's people when they undergo suffering. They argue with God, they complain to God, they weep before God. Theirs is not a faith that is a dried-eyed stoicism, like fatalism, but a faith so robust it's willing to wrestle with God. A relationship, a relationship, all right. Last one, and this is really where our people are today, and I have to finish with this one. In our secular society today, we are dealing with something called nihilism, or nihilism, depending on how you want to put it. This is the belief or the rejection of all religious and moral principles. And like it or not, it leads to an understanding of the meaninglessness of life. It simply does. While we find that many people in our society today have kind of a hodged-podged understanding of all these different spiritual things. Many people are very spiritual and they have this real eclectic understanding of suffering. It's not a Christian understanding. It's not even a full-orbed uh, other culture understanding of suffering. It's just their own mess they've created. But a growing reality in our intellectual and very secular culture is you live, you die, and that is all there is. End of story. All suffering is in opposition to the desire for personal happiness. No matter the platitudes, you know, what doesn't kill you only makes you stronger. Ever use that one? Well, in a dog-eat-dog evolutionary world, that's true, you know, that's how they think. Hey, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're gonna get. You know, we, we throw these things around, this is what we do. Hey, when you're at the end of your rope, what do you do? You tie a knot in it and hold on. I got a new favorite. Here it is. You are a speck on a speck, orbiting orbiting a speck in the middle of a deep species specklessness. They're all cold comfort. They don't help you deal with anything because this is all there is. And when it's over, it's over. This is the growing secularism of our day. This is why there's no commitment relationships anymore about my happiness now because there's nothing else later so i'll move on it's why drug abuse is running rampant also to cope with the realities of this but why not feel good for a few minutes now after all when i die it's all over this is why our culture has so distorted love and sex it's about my happiness now because there's nothing else on the other side Nihilism is the rejection of all religious and moral principles, often in the belief uh, that leads to the meaninglessness of life. And it describes the despair and the hopelessness people all around us are experiencing. 
But the cross, but the cross crushes nihilism with something called hope. Hope. The cross is the death of death. Because on the third day, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, triumphing over death, hell, and the grave. Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Here we go. We're going to practice for Easter. Christ is risen. That's right. And because we have a risen Savior, the cross speaks of the death of death and suffering. But we have a living hope and we rejoice. We can even rejoice in our suffering. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Amen? But we can also rejoice in sufferings, knowing that suffering will produce endurance, and endurance will produce character, and character will produce even more hope of the glory of God. This hope does not disappoint us because it's the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us because we know this is not the end of the story. We do not lose heart. Though our outer man wastes away, the inner self is being renewed every day for this light momentary affliction, this life, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. <sighs> you live, you die, and that's all there is. End of story. Most people around us today in our secular society, based upon evolutionary principles, believe that to be the truth. But can I just close with this statement from C.S. Lewis? Good old C.S. From his book, The Last Battle. All their life in this world and all their adventures had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning the chapter one, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. How is it possible for us to be a joyful church, even in the midst of deep, deep suffering? How do we suffer really well? It takes looking to the cross. It takes looking to the cross. And right now, I'll close with this. What is that thing in your life? What is that heartache, that pain, that point of suffering, either past, present, or maybe something you fear in the future? Let me tell you how the cross speaks to it. The cross speaks of God's grace in suffering, showing us purpose in our pain. It is never punitive. It is never to condemn or judge us. It is always loving correction to bring us closer to his heart. The cross speaks of God's love in suffering, urging us to trust him in our hurt because he is for us and he is with us. The cross speaks of God's passion in suffering, calling us to approach and to wrestle with our God in prayer because we have a personal relationship with him. The cross speaks of the death of death and suffering and we have a living hope and we, we can actually rejoice in suffering. Let me pray for us. I'm going to actually exit here really quickly, get back there. And if anybody would like to talk to me about something that you're going through, I would consider that an honor. So 
Let's pray together. Father, uh, t- this morning has been a bit of an oddity, just uh, different things not working the way that I had planned or hoped, but you're in control. We trust you implicitly. You know what's best. And I just pray, Lord, that this morning, this topic of suffering, it's a very real one. It's a very personal one. It's a very painful one. I pray that this morning that we will appreciate a little better how you have equipped us to be able to deal with suffering. And Father, I pray you will also help us to help others around us who are dealing with suffering. They have no idea what to do with it. It's always wrong. It's always bad in their eyes. And yet for us, it only leads to greater glory. Help us, I pray, to get our arms around these truths. In Jesus' name.